there's this veneer of media objectivity um, where it's like nothing to see here, don't worry about it, we're objective, we're objective. And then the ownership structure is completely changed. You have the more successful national media organizations that have become polarized because of audience share, generally. Like if, if you decide to become a little more partisan, then you can actually get a more consistent audience. What's partly so frustrating is in addition to the bias and that it exists, but that there's a certain invisibility to the bias among mainstream corporate outlets, right? So I will often hear people say if I tweet out an Intercept article, oh gosh, that's your that's your source for saying X, Y, and Z? I'm not going to believe it, which is kind of the opposite of what you should be thinking. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas for those who celebrate. From the Yang Speaks family, this is Zach Rauman, one of the co-hosts of this podcast with Andrew, welcoming you to a special holiday episode of Yang Speaks. I hope you guys have all had some time to relax and enjoy. It's been a crazy slash rough year, and hopefully you've been able to relax, watch some movies, drink some eggnog. If you like eggnog, uh, I don't, but I guess people do. Um, but hope you enjoy your holiday. Look, we've got a, um, a special episode today. Brianna Joy Gray is joining with Andrew. Brianna was the national press secretary for Bernie Sanders in 2020. She's also a former member of the media, having worked as an editor for Current Affairs and a senior politics editor for The Intercept. So she's got this interesting perspective of running for office in politics, but also in the media. The one thing I will say before you guys dive in is that I've seen a lot of comments on Twitter, depending who we bring on the episode, it's like, oh, you bring these people on the right or you bring these people on the left. I don't like it. And look, that's fine. You're welcome to your opinion. But I just want you to know, we um, we do believe in humanity first. We also don't believe that if you bring someone on your podcast, you have to agree with everything they say. <laughs> we've had conservatives and we've had far left liberals um, on Yank Speaks and Andrew's gone on their podcast as well. And I wanted to share with you of the holidays that a friendly reminder that we're all humans. We are human beings first, and there's a lot more that we share than there is that we disagree about. So with that, I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Brianna. I wish you all a very, very happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate. This is a time of year where we get to pause, relax, and reflect on who we love and what's special about all of us um, as humans. So love you guys. Enjoy this episode of Yank Speaks. I am so pumped to be sitting down with Bernie Sanders, National Press Secretary, powerhouse extraordinaire, Brianna Gray. Welcome, Brie. It's great to have you. Thank you, Andrew. It's a real pleasure. Um, thank you. Is it okay if I call you Brie? Is that that the your? Yeah, of course. I made my you know I made my Twitter handle back in two thousand and nine because uh, I was working somewhere where they wanted me to do it. They wanted me to make a, a, a Twitter account and teach them how to how Twitter works because I was like the young person on the staff. And so I made it Bree Bree Joy, not really thinking anything of it. And now, you know, over a decade later, everyone calls me Bree. But it's cool. It seems it feels familiar and, and comfortable and nice. So I like it. It is very familiar. I can relate to your Twitter evolution. Um, so I'm a little bit older than you, <laughs> which means that uh, that my Twitter indoctrination um, happened a little bit later in life. Um, so for me, what happened was I wrote a book in 2014 and the publisher was like, hey, you need to be on Twitter. 
And so I was like, okay, I guess I'll get on Twitter now. So it was like 2013. Um, and um, you know, I, I like having a social media account for various platforms, but I haven't been very active. And then when I decided to run for president, then it became a much bigger deal. So it sounds like it was similar for you where 10 years ago you created this account just to have it and then it became this enormous deal when you became this public figure. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't use it at all until 2015, 2016 um, because I was you know big mad online about progressive issues not getting the hearing that I thought they should in the context of the Bernie campaign. So uh, to the extent that anyone's ever mad at me for being too online, you can blame Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Being too online is a real problem <laughs> because there are so many times uh, I wind up in like uh, an online um, rabbit hole or vortex and I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, this is not what I should be doing with my fine, whatever day of the week it is. Um, so I would love to hear about your uh, path and your evolution because I feel like everyone would want to be you in like in multiple ways. Um, but but you're you're this leading progressive voice. There are so many people that, in my view, uh, are aligned with you, believe what you believe. I think you would do a fantastic job of arguing for your point of view and doing it in a way that's uh, very positive and effective. Uh, so can you share a little bit of your arc, uh, sort of how, how you arrived at this juncture? Yeah. Um, so I like a lot of young people, wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I graduated in 2007. I was a history of science, history of art and architecture major, so no clear career path there. I was one of these people who thought, well, I'm a good writer. I like to argue. Everyone's been telling me I should be a lawyer, so let me go ahead and apply to law school. And, you know, after law school, I still wasn't entirely clear what I wanted to do. So I you know, just went to work for a firm and figured I can, you know, use the money to pay off my loans and then have the flexibility to take any kind of perhaps more creative writing job that I really would like to do um, without the, you know, enormous uh, six-figure student loan debt on my shoulders. But like a lot of people in my age cohort, we got hit really hard by the recession and kind of the, the bonuses and job opportunities that I thought were going to materialize didn't. I started um, at my firm in well, I graduated law school in 2011 um, and should have started, you know, that fall. But a lot of us were deferred, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, so I ended up working as a lawyer for about seven years, uh, struggling to pay down my debt. But when 2015 happened and 2016 happened and Bernie Sanders was running, I found myself really frustrated by a lot of the media narratives that were going around, in particular, the idea that he didn't have any diverse support. Um, the reality was, even back then, uh, that the majority of people under 30 uh, of every demographic group and across the gender spectrum preferred Bernie Sanders. I was 31 at the time, but I like to lump myself into that crowd. We'll give it to you for sure, <laughs> Bree. No probs. I'm, I'm a little ahead. I'm a little ahead of my, gen my, my time generationally. Um, so I started tweeting a lot. And my, you know, 100 follower account started to grow. And eventually I started a podcast um, called Someone's Wrong on the Internet because I was so frustrated with the narratives that were going around. And I started it with um, a friend of mine who's both gay and Korean American because of all of the narrative that was only white people support Bernie Sanders. Um, and I said, well, let me start writing articles to draw attention For, to this wait, podcast. Wait, where do you think that narrative originated? Like, was there a particular media outlet that decided to throw that out there? There was an initial article. I forget where it was. I want to say, mm, let me not guess. I want I want to say Politico, but that just might be my own um, 
bias that has emerged over <laughs> a series of kind of bias um, political takes from that particular outlet. But um, the the person who wrote the article later said that they thought it had been taken too far and kind of regrets uh, the trend. But I think it was something that was going to emerge no matter what. I don't know if you remember from the the leaked Podesta emails, from the Hillary Clinton emails, one of the um, exchanges that you saw was an email from um, Neera Tandon, who's now part of Joe Biden's staff, saying, we've got to get all of these journalists of color, and there was a list of journalists, to really push this, um, to talk about the fact that Bernie has a Bernie bro, bro problem, that they could be helpful in this regard. So it really was a top-down approach to say, let's exploit the fact that Democrats care about people of color, they care about diversity, it's one of the main things that distinguishes the party from Republicans, and try to pitch Bernie's movement um, as somehow an- uninclusive, um, anti-inclusivity, when it was never really the case. And then in 2020, I think we all saw that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden were the only people who managed to really get above double digits with respect to black voters. Bernie Sanders was number one with Latino voters. Um, and Bernie Sanders was even number one with black voters for a period of time there in February. Uh, but you never really heard that in the mainstream media and the narrative persisted despite the fact that, you know, Bernie raised more money from black voters than had ever given to a a political campaign in history. More black voters contributed to Bernie campaign, Bernie's campaign than any other campaign. It's so, it was frustrating. I can understand that because uh, Bernie 2015 was such a pure messenger that I can see a lot of folks of any, uh, certainly any racial background, um, getting behind it because like yeah i remember watching bernie speak and being like yeah every word he said was right <laughs> you know <laughs> and i was like yep that's right uh and and somewhere around there i you know sent him um you know donation because i was like well if i think he's right then i should uh, get behind him um so I, I know people a lot of people felt that way so what it, it sounds like you're suggesting is that there was a political article um, and then some folks who supported Hillary Clinton were like, ooh, let's make some hay out of that. <laughs> and they decided like, push it to the moon. I'm not sure if they, you know, they, you know, which, which came first, the chicken or the egg. I don't remember the timeline at this point. And remember, I was just a civilian. I was not involved in politics at all at this point. What happened, um, Brie? You've gotten absorbed. <laughs> well, what happened was I started writing articles. I started writing articles um, in order to draw attention to the podcast. And the articles themselves really took off. And I started freelancing and I would stay late at the, the law firm and write until midnight, um, you know, and, you know, or, you know, write during my lunch break and stay till midnight trying to make up for the work that I should have been doing. One or the other, I understand. <laughs> and eventually that manifested in an offer from The Intercept to come on as a senior politics editor at the start of 2018. Which was a for dream a true. massive for a massive pay cut of approximately thirty five percent, it was a significant pay cut. I, I I will say my my um erstwhile financial advisor would would not have advised me to do that. Um, but it was literally my dream come true, and I had enough savings. In, and this is you know my relative privilege that it, privilege that enabled me to do this. I had enough savings to basically take the pay cut and eat through my savings for a year while working at the Intercept. Um, and right as I had to make some decisions about, you know, whether to move and, you know, how to make this work and how to refinance my loans or whatever I needed to do, um, I, you know, I was reached out to by the Bernie campaign, um, in the beginning of 2019 about whether or not I wanted to come on board as national press secretary. And that didn't resolve my financial problems, but it didn't mean that I would move to DC. (laughs) I had to move anyway. I had to get a tuber apartment anyway. Um, and it was, you know, an opportunity that I thought long and hard about. 
right? Because I enjoyed my independence at the intercept. I understood how identity was going to be weaponized in 2020 again. And I thought there was some benefit to having an independent journalist of color who's a woman. That's true. You know, not you were doing good from where you were. And then you, you know, uh oh, (laughs) she has gone political. Um, So, so, uh, so it sounds like you were a full time journalist uh, for a little more year. Is that right? A little less than a year. A little less than a year. Yeah. Uh, So was that the dream come true? Was that wonderful? That that period of time? I loved it. I loved working at The Intercept. I loved working at a place where my politics were validated and my insights were really encouraged. You know, I, I had friends at my law firm and I really appreciated my experiences there as well, but 20... They're all miserable. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know how it is. Look, the, the, the 2016 really exposed the extent to which we had very different um, political priorities. And people who I thought, you know, I was in New York, we all were, you know, capital L liberal. I thought we all basically. Where, felt where the did same you grow way. up, Bree? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I should know this. Like, were you a New York area product originally or no? Uh, yes and no. That's a little bit of a <laughs> complicated story. I moved to New York when I was 15. Um, but we had, and I graduated from high school in New York. But we had been living abroad for eight years before that. Um, abroad, where? We were in Saudi Arabia for two years and in Kenya for six years. Wow, it's so cosmopolitan. I mean, you showed up in New York at age 15. <laughs> yeah, at age 15. And before that, um, we had been living in North Carolina. My mom was in her um, doctoral program at NC State. And we lived there for six years in my youth. But I was born in Washington, D.C., where my parents met because uh, they both went to Howard University. Wow. Okay, sorry. Thank you for that arc. <laughs> that was very helpful to me. Um, so if you went to high school in New York and then you worked there for... Um, eight years. I mean, you were very, very New York. Um, so then you moved to DC for the Bernie <laughs> campaign. How was that? Yeah. You know, um, there's lots, there's a lot to love about DC. Um, mostly I didn't get to experience it that much because I was so just involved in campaign life and, you know, traveling a good amount of time. It wasn't as though I was kind of meandering around the city and exploring the way I would like to, frankly, you since weren't COVID, just doing the DC food tour. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. In the last year, obviously, it's been COVID. But since COVID, I've actually been able to walk around my neighborhood more, get a better sense of the layout of the city. And I feel like I know it a lot better than I did when I was, you know, working during the campaign season. I'm a huge fan of the Intercept's journalism. Everything I've seen out of there just seemed so real and on point uh, is different than other outlets that way. And I think there's like a major problem with what some people call corporate media. (laughs) (laughs) I I am one of those people. (laughs) Oh, no, I mean, hey, like, I I, I I like that as moniker. It makes you think you're like, yeah, corporate media. And then you're like, what's the opposite of corporate media? So I, I think the massive crisis in journalism, um, you know, the, the first thing, it's like a layer cake and it's all terrible. Um, but the first layer is that over two local papers have gone out of business. And so yeah. if you're in a community, it's like no local news. Like how the heck can you vote on anything that's going on in your community? And then you have the national media which is completely polarized in various directions because your economic incentives drive you that way. And then you have yeah. the social media layer on top of it that just drives you even more to extremity, <laughs> even into like different versions of reality, where at this point it's like, 
you know, up is down, left is right, <laughs> you know, yeah. like boat totals or whatever we say they are. Yeah, well, I, I have mixed feelings about the the um, social media piece, but to your point about the, the independent media versus corporate media piece, you know, there's a, a legitimate criticism that can be made about the Intercept's funding model as well, but there's a big difference when you have, uh, to the in- incentive structure when you're working at a place like the Intercept where you don't have requirements to get a certain number of clicks or publish a certain number of articles a day um, you can spend time doing research and reporting without the kind of financial pressures of the typical ad revenue model because it's funded by, you know, a billionaire. There's like a, a, a large amount of money that's guaranteed to the intercept to do its work, regardless of how much money it makes. Um, whereas other outlets tend to have to make sure that this is one of the good. This is one of the billionaires, right? Well, you know, that's what I when, I when I say that there's a legitimate criticism, legitimate critique to be made of the Intercept study model. There are pros and cons of that, obviously, but there are firewalls up between the Intercept and um, the the eBay billionaire, who's the one that funds the Intercept. Um, and there are a lot of on the on the record, I am a fan of uh, Omidyar. I think Pierre Omidyar has done so much good work, not just the Intercept, but. I ran a nonprofit for years and the Omidyar social fellows and the social innovation investments he's made. I think the fact that he already saw the problems with journalism and was trying to do something about it early on, uh, that there are um, legitimate criticisms of our winner take all economic system. But in like in my mind, Omidyar is among the most benevolent, uh, wealthy people out there. Yeah, I think, look, <sighs> The, the point is not ever in the critiques that come from the left about the massive accumulation of wealth, et cetera, is not to say that any one individual is, you know, evil or that, you know, there aren't people who can do good things with their wealth. The idea, you know, do you say winner take all? Obviously, um, uh, Ananji Aradas wrote this great book about this, this idea. The idea is we shouldn't have to rely on private charity, Um to fix the problems of the world and that the enormous accumulation of wealth in the hands of very few people can have really um, um, stymieing effects for journalism, the fourth estate, our democracy, you know, the ability of someone like, you know, Michael Bloomberg, who was what, the ninth richest person on the planet to enter the race. What that means is that, you know, he has the money to fund his famed mayor school, right? Where, so many people were arguably willing to endorse him, and particularly a lot of black mayors. It, it did seem like a lot of mayors came out for like Bloomberg, and you're like, oh, maybe there's something going on there. Yeah, and, and it's not it's not again that the mayors are, are bad people or like you know wanting to do a bad thing, but if you I, go through his mayor's program, I had nothing you've been against funded. it. For for the record, if, if I were mayor of a city and Mike Bloomberg had. Uh, funded something in my city and then decided to do something, you know, like I, I'm not mad at anyone who said, look, the best thing for my community is for me to get on on board with this campaign. Well, here's um, the thing you can there's it's one thing to to critique the system. The system is that a lot of mayors, particularly these black mayors from poorer districts, right, who are from predominantly minority districts who have a harder time raising money. Same goes for Black, disproportionately black Congress people, right, who are similarly coming from districts where it's harder to earn money because they have a lower income population um, for all of the historical reasons that we understand. 
you know, tend to be more susceptible to these kinds of buyouts. And that's not because they're worse people. It's because of these structural issues in terms of their inability to raise funds. And the fact that when, especially when you're a congressperson, your number one job is to raise funds for the party. And there's enormous pressures on you to get that money. So the critique is not to say, you know, Keisha Lance Bottoms is a problem. It's to say, what can we do to make us a little, Keisha Lance Bottoms is more free to vote her conscience, to reflect the interest of the people that she presides over. Um, the, her constituents, instead of feeling the need to take this money and then to give an endorsement. I don't remember. I thought Keisha Lance Bottoms was for Joe, but there was like a, there were a number of other young yeah, black mayors that, there that were. fell under sorry, the camp. I, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like throw her her in particular under the bus, but she was the first the first uh, Southern black mayor <laughs> black that mayor that came to mind. She is very cool. Um, you know, <laughs> spent a lot of time in, in in Atlanta of late. So one of the things that people I don't think um, make enough of Brie is that at this point, vast wealth, often technology wealth, and the media have now converged, where you have these legacy media properties that can't make money or can't make enough money to keep people happy. Um, and so then some tech mogul titan uh, who does not like sports as much decides to buy the publication. Um, so Mark Benioff buys Time Magazine. Jeff Bezos buys The Washington Post. Lorian Powell Jobs buys The Atlantic. Now, some of these people I like, uh, you know, like like some of them I like less. <laughs> you know, but, but but there's definitely a thing where um, where tech money and you, I guess you could use the Intercept as an example, although we didn't buy it. It's not like a legacy media property that um, uh, that OMDR decided to buy. Um, but there there has been this convergence, and I don't know if people. This is something that I actually am very very frustrated by is that there's this veneer of media objectivity um, where it's like nothing to see here, don't worry about it, we're objective, we're objective. And then the ownership structure has completely changed. There was a point when you had these firms that were very profitable firms, uh, you know, newspapers even, great business for generations. Uh, and then that business has gotten decimated. So now you have 2,000 local papers out of existence. Over half of the papers that still exist are owned by private equity. So they're just like ringing them for cash and they don't really care about the local coverage so much. Uh, and then you have the legacy publications that have often gotten consolidated or bought up by their individuals um, or private equity or other firms. Uh, and then you have the more successful national media organizations that have become polarized because of um, audience share generally. Like if, if you decide to become a little more partisan, then you can actually get a more consistent audience. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, an accurate diagnosis. And to your one of your first points, what's partly so frustrating is, in addition to the bias and that it exists, but that there's a certain invisibility to the bias among mainstream corporate outlets, right? So I will often hear people say, if I tweet out an Intercept article, oh gosh, that's your, that's your source for saying X, Y, and Z? I'm not going to believe it which is kind of the opposite of what you should be thinking. Um, you should trust a relatively more independent outlet over, you know, frankly, the the New York Times. I mean, I, I, I know that it sounds, people might be tired of hearing about Bernie bros and media bias. Um, and I understand that. But I'll tell you, working um, on the comm side and the campaign. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's true. You have all the inside <laughs> scoop. What the heck was going on over there? You know, the conversations that I was having with people in an effort to just say what had happened, right? So there was an episode where um, 
I was on the road, uh, Bernie Sanders and all of the candidates, I think almost everybody, maybe you were there, Andrew, I can't quite remember, had uh, spoken at, I believe it was an NAACP conference in Detroit. And everybody spoke, but Bernie Sanders was the only candidate to get a standing ovation from the room. And when I read the New York Times write-up of the event, uh, the words Bernie or and or Sanders were not mentioned once in this article. At the time, Bernie was the number two candidate in the polls, right? So I reached out to the author. This and must I said, have driven you insane. <laughs> right. Especially given all of the narrative around Bernie having a, a black problem, right? He's the only one at an NAACP conference who gets a standing ovation from the room. So I reached out to the, the writer who I had recently met at Netroots and I thought we had a lovely talk. And I said, hey, I just wanted to you know, reach out and ask about why it was that Bernie wasn't mentioned, especially since he did so well and because he is literally <laughs> the, the number, number two, two candidate in this race. And is a black audience. Right. <laughs> And he said, oh, I must have been in the bathroom when that happened. No way. <laughs> so, so I said, oh, okay. Well, the footage went up immediately after. You know, you could have watched I it. I can send back. it to you. You can watch your bathroom break. <laughs> right. But this is like a football game where you have, you have TiVo. Right. And, and you know, if you were going to time a bathroom a bathroom break, I perhaps would have timed it not during the number two candidate in the races remarks, but You can regardless. wait till Yang. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we all know that you were a dark horse and people were sleeping on you for too long. Um, but, you know, oh, then, nice then you. <laughs> you know what, you know, I think it's true. But, you know, his response at that point was, you know, not good and, and relatively hostile. And he pivoted to some other concerns he thought you know, he thought that the campaign had unfairly hit, beat up on one of his um, colleagues because she had written a piece that had gotten a lot of criticism, not from us, but from the public, because it was not a great piece. And I was like, well, this isn't really my issue. And then the conversation devolved. But that kind of thing happened again and again. There was another time a journalist um, had written that Bernie was not, not going to make the debate after the heart attack, that he was going to miss the next debate after the heart attack. It was said declaratively like that. And so I reached out and said, OK, well, all the doctors are saying this kind of um, procedure that he had usually has a four day recovery window and people are back out on the golf course or whatever. And could you, would you mind changing that? Um, and he said, no, absolutely not. Uh, I, I I'm just, I'm not going to, I said, on what basis, uh, you know, this person has a doctor in front of their name, but they're not a medical doctor. I said, you are not, you, your writer, he was an editor. Your writer should not be quoting you as a source of medical expertise as to when Bernie Sanders can attend a debate. And of course he was at the debate. <laughs> right? So it was this kind of thing over and over and over again. You know, Bernie wins Nevada and um, Chris Matthews is talking about how people are going to be, you know, chopping heads off in Central Park. Bernie, you know, Bernie supporters are going to be chopping people's heads off in Central Park. There's no mention of the fact that he got 70% of the Latino vote and how important the Latino vote was going to be in the general election, right? Um, you, you had... Uh, a person bringing a swastika, a Nazi flag to a Bernie rally and it getting no coverage. But, you know, the use of some snake emojis under other candidates, um, you know, Instagram pages being a 45 minute interview subject for Rachel Maddow, you know, and on and on and on. And important things were happening, right? The country was going into a crisis toward the end of the primary. Bernie Sanders was standing there with a lot of the answers. And, you know, as someone who's been championing universal basic income, we needed big ticket ideas to get us out of this crisis, which we all saw coming down the pike by the end of the primary season. And right now we are struggling. We have gotten this stimulus package now that is half of what was being offered up prior to 
the election and none of the substantive structural changes that were on offer managed to make it through the primary season. And it's it's demoralizing to have seen such promise and inspira- inspiring ideas from people like you, people like Bernie, people like Elizabeth Warren, and to see none of that really reflected in our party at present. Your experiences um, on the Bernie campaign with the media are reflective. Uh, and so I, I want to dig into this uh, more because, and I also don't want to be like, oh, you know, like that, like media. <laughs> this, that's it. Um, but hearing your perspective is fascinating. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So when you talk about corporate media, uh, Sometimes it, it brings to mind for me, it's like, okay, what is the uncorporate media? Like, what is a source that you can actually just shrug and say they don't have any incentives around suppressing one candidate or elevating another? Uh, and uh, one outlet that people do trust more than others um, is NPR, which is publicly funded. Uh, you also have C-SPAN, which is the most boring thing in the world, but it literally <laughs> just, but it just like sticks a camera on people and just like lets them work. Um, so I had a story, like a time when I was in a hotel in Iowa after a day of campaigning and then I turned on TV and I was just flipping channels and then I saw C-SPAN, I saw myself and I was like, <laughs> like, what's this? And it was an event I'd done that day and it was just presented without commentary. It was just me hanging out with high school kids answering questions and I was like, Wow uh this is up um at c-span uh very very different than the cable news coverage which has a completely different rhythm and presentation style uh so if we were to want to mend journalism like do you have any ideas uh like i i think that there should be much more public investment in journalism i do not see any other way because right now you have the corporate incentives going one direction and then uh, in my mind, it's either philanthropy or public resources. Those are really the only two. Um, and the tech version is philanthropy, essentially, because if you look at the wealth and the people who care about this, it ends up be- being techies uh, very often. 
Um, and so if you don't love that and they, you know, there are ups and downs to it. Like I, I, you know, I think some of them do a great job. Um, I'm a, I'm a, a fan of the Atlantic's work. Like, uh, you know, I love the Atlantic. Um, I think intercept is great work. Um, but then you pretty quickly land on public, uh, support for journalism. And then there are a lot of folks that are like, oh, you can't have the government fund journalism because like, you know, it'll be corrupt Orwellian big brother. Like, you know, they'll like censor everything and the rest of it. And you're like, well, there is like the BBC, which is publicly funded and they seem okay. You have NPR seems okay. You have, uh, you know, different examples of this throughout the world. Yeah. So the, the conversation about kind of government versus private funding is the same conversation that ends up happening about between Republicans and Democrats about big government versus small government. Right. And what, what is missing from that conversation often is like, sure, hypothetically, the government could have, could be corrupt, but we all know that there's an enormous amount of corruption in the business world and there are no democratic mechanisms for us to do anything about that. So at least in, when we we have government, we have some semblance of democracy still and we can vote people in and out and have an, an accountability mechanism. Nobody really talks about, okay, we have the free market. How are we going to hold Jeff Bezos, who's richer than God, accountable for anything that he does to any of his employees, et cetera? But there's a third option, right? There is independently um, subscriber-funded media that's neither government or business-based. And that's where you have outlets like Current Affairs, where I'm a contributing editor. You have outlets like uh, The Intercept is partially independently funded. They are trying increasingly to get off of um, peers' funding. And when people subscribe, it helps them to be able to do that. Um, you have outlets like David Sirota, who was my colleague on the campaign, but a veteran journalist of 20 years before that, who started his own blog, The Daily Poster. You have a lot of people abdicate uh, defecting from their journalistic institution glenn greenwald recently left the intercept to start his own blog um that is independently funded on patreon where people give money to these you know to these individuals or in david sirota's case he's trying to start not just an individual platform but a platform where a lot of progressive journalists can come and write about corruption and the other kinds of issues that ha get very little hearing in the mainstream media but are really at the root of a lot of the problems in this country through his outlet called The Daily Poster. So I do think that people are finding a lot of interest in this, and it's a sustainable model um, to a certain degree. But if we are ever going to be able to compete with the MSNBCs and CNNs and Fox Newses of the world, I agree that something more substantial has to change. And I think viewers demanding more of those corporate institutions would be really helpful because currently, I think the average American believes that those that reporting out of quote unquote liberal institutions, liberal um, media institutions is being done in good faith. And they don't know that so many of like MSNBC newscasters, um, pundits are conservative. They don't even know that some of the people who are giving advice to the Democratic Party on a daily basis, you know, George Bush's former comms woman has a primetime spot at MSNBC. You know, Fair Vote and other organizations that have assessed media bias show that the average MSNBC panel is skewed more conservative, has more Republicans on it than the average Fox News panel. You know, and so people are digesting this information in good faith, not even really realizing that the institutions that they think are liberal and have a liberal bias and that they want a liberal bias aren't even liberal. They are echoing the same kinds of right wing talking points that you get on Fox News. And in fact, due to this kind of weird populist surge that's happening on the right, sometimes you get a Fox News pundit who's more willing to talk honestly about something like trade policies or healthcare, even than some of the MSNBC hosts. There are two things I'd like to suggest here. One is 
uh, it's not left or right anymore. It's kind of uh, in the institution or outside the institution. Mm, and I love down. the folks like you who are like trying to like create the outside of the institution um, ecosystem and voices. The second thing is that I love the subscriber model um, that you and others, and just to, to be like, I don't know whether this is true. You're working at Current Affairs as an editor. Um, are are you now at a point where you're generating subscription for yourself personally, or like, are you working for a um, a, a publication? So I don't I don't get paid by Current Affairs. I'm kind of there as a. Um you know, an advisory in an advisory role as a contributing editor and stuff like that. I, my income comes through my podcast, Bad Faith. So, you know, my co-host Virgil Tex- Texas and I, and he's from Chapel Trap House. Check out um, Bad Faith. It's a great podcast. <laughs> I've been there. It yes, you have. It's a great your, episode. It is worth your time and donation. Don't you want to support Bree and Virgil? <laughs> I appreciate that, Andrew. But yeah, we, you know, the subscriber model has worked, um, you know, for a relatively small sum of money each month, people can unlock, you know, a ton of premium episodes, plus we put out a free episode every week, um, and they get a lens on the news that they wouldn't otherwise get. Now, everyone, you know, doesn't work as well for everyone. Obviously, we're advantaged by the fact that we had, you know, platforms, people knew who we are. To yeah, you're, you're like national voices and whatnot. <laughs> this is one of the things that, that too, Brie, like I, I struggle with too, because, you know, you to yourself, you're you. Uh, but... You are remarkable. Virgil is very, very well known. And the fact that you can make it work um, does not mean that, you know, like the bottom, whatever, 90 some odd percent of folks could make it work in the same way. That's true. Uh, but, I'll, I'll, but but take take this into account. I was when I was a completely anonymous citizen with 200 Twitter followers, I started a podcast. And over the course of two years, we got to about, I don't know, 8,000 people listening to the podcast on average every week, every two weeks, actually. And, and that was, that's, that puts you in like the top echelon of podcasts. The vast majority of podcasts barely get anyone listening to them ever. Um, and we had a lot of recognition. <laughs> Some people listening to this are like, you know, like, like, I mean, that, that, but sorry, that resembles reality. It's true. Continue. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, it's hard to break through, but we, we managed to, to, to break through, to go viral a, a couple of times. And we never, we never monetized the podcast, but I think that we could have, and we could have grown it. We ended up stopping it because I left and went to the intercept. But the thing I will say about the internet is that it has a democratizing effect. I, my political career, to the extent that I have one, came fully out of engaging with people and having arguments and discussions on the internet, inviting people to continue those conversations on the podcast, writing articles that concretized my views and were able to be disseminated far and wide and went viral on their own kind of merit, not because I was a, a big name, not because I was associated with any institution. My most viral articles continue to come out of Current Affairs magazine. I've never been published in the New York Times, you know? And so I want to say, yes, it's hard, but it's not as hard as it would be if we didn't have the freedom of these internet platforms to get around a lot of the gatekeeping that has traditionally been done in this sector. Again, this is why so many people uh, want to be you, <laughs> really. Awesome. I want to hear more horror stories in terms of uh, corporate media mistreatment of the Bernie campaign. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to get me in trouble. Look, you know, it, it, it was hard. It was hard largely because, you know, I, I know that everybody who works for every campaign, well, 
I think that a lot of people who work for a lot of campaigns really believe they're in it for the right reasons and, and because their candidate is the one that can truly help America. And so I don't mean to sound like Pollyanna about this. No, I just want to interject for a moment, Bree. I cannot tell you how many times I did an event where there were uh, tons of journalists present where I did what I thought was a good job uh, and got zero mentioned. Andrew, I know. Over and I over mean, again. I, I, I will tell you that. I, I told you this on our podcast, on, on Bad Faith Podcast, right? I remember being at The Intercept. And because I'm so online, I remember looking at YouTube videos. I would see... I would be watching Bernie YouTube videos and see people from the Yang gang commenting in them, right? Like everywhere I looked on the internet, I saw Yang gang, Yang gang. And I was like, this feels like an organic phenomenon. This feels like something real and that's not going away. In the same way that I saw in a lot of YouTube comments and Twitter comments, people who were who from California, who were from Kamala Harris's district, who were not big fans of her. And I said, well, this doesn't bode well for her campaign. I suspect that this is not going to go well. It was an early indication of the fire that you were able to you ignite organically despite having no participation from the media. And I remember getting a, a request from your team to see if The Intercept had any interest in profiling you or interviewing you. And, you know, taking it to my editor and like asking what he thought. And there was a kind of, well, this isn't really going to go anywhere attitude. And, and I don't say that to like throw any under the, anybody under the bus. A lot of people don't go anywhere. And I was, I was going off of like YouTube comments and I could have very easily been wrong. But I can perceive that there's a certain kind of doomer pessimism about new people and new ideas among the left that can sometimes hurt candidates that could be really successful. AOC barely got any attention until she had that viral um, ad in like spring of 2018, right? So in your case, I think there were a lot of factors I think that there's a hostility to new people, period. I think if I can say this, there's a certain amount of, you know, race, like racist bias, frankly. I, I think that... You mean the, the Asian thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, they were, like, taking inches off of your height in articles. They were, like, shrinking no, you down. That was a and little being, like, bit odd. The old, you know, the, the old incredible shrinking <laughs> candidate. Like, huh, I didn't it, it was ridiculous. That I was... You look, uh, we, we haven't had, a, you know, a, a large number of examples of, of Americans of East Asian descent, like, taking pol politics by storm. That's not a reason for you to ignore it. It's a, a reason for you to celebrate first the way that you do when a lot of other first happen in this country. And it was really remarkable to me. You know, Pete Buttigieg being the first openly gay candidate to run is a big deal. But why wasn't your first status heralded more? We heard a lot about uh, Kamala Harris's first status. You know, she's the, our first, you know, Asian American VP or, or will be, but you would have been our first Asian American president. And you can't pretend to care about these identity things, which are important, which I think matter on, on, a, on a certain level, but care selectively because you're obviously trying to boost certain people's interests versus another. And that's why I think there's so much cynicism about identity politics. And that's ultimately destructive to a lot of broader movements. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I thought you instantly were exciting, largely because you were bringing a new idea to the table. New ideas to the table. People, you know, we all know that Bernie Sanders you know, isn't popular because he was some like rhetorical dynamo and he was like wowing everybody with these Obama-like speeches. No, people were impressed with Bernie Sanders because he stood on a stage and said, hey, healthcare is a human right. 
I don't think that you should die just he because you can't afford your insulin. He has a very clear vision of uh, values, principles, and goals. Yes. And it's very, very compelling, and it's unadulterated. Yes. You can tell it's not poll tested. You can tell he yes. actually believes it. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's yes, that's novel. And you, and you have some of that too, Andrew. Like, people have a lot of respect for folks who are willing to stand behind an idea, especially one that's not test driven or poll, you know, poll vetted or whatever, and just sell it. And there's not enough of innovation. There's not enough of pitching that's done in the Democratic Party. There's too much poll testing and saying, well, let's like fit ourselves in the image of whatever this print sheet of, you know, printed out sheet of paper tells us to be. Instead of having confidence and faith in the American people to be able to internalize, digest and adopt a new idea. I'm going to ask this just because I'm personally curious. Do you remember any uh, conversations on the campaign about universal basic income and Bernie? Because I Mm. was waiting for him to uh, say something positive about universal basic income, really the the, the whole time, (laughs) honestly. Do you remember any of those conversations? I'm just curious. I don't. But I also wouldn't have really been privy to them in my role. I will say that in the discourse, in the lefty discourse, I've noticed there's, um, you know, there's there's the you know, jobs guarantee camp and the UBI camp, and there's some like tension between them. And there are a lot of people who are like, I don't really care either or, both good ideas. And I think that it what it felt like to me was that Bernie, with the jobs guarantee that was a part of the Green New Deal program, had just decided maybe maybe for messaging clarity reasons, like this is what we're going to do. It's a Green New Deal and jobs program. A Green New Deal and jobs program. That's what we're going to do. Um, but certainly now in the context of COVID, when, you know, Bernie has been talking about $1,200, a lot of other people went 2000, right. And has been since the beginning. Right. Meanwhile, and and so has Kamala Harris, by the way, before she joined up with Joe Biden, she was championing $2,000 a month relief. But now that she's a part of this ticket has been silent on it. And Joe Biden has also been silent on wildly silent and the media has not pressed him on this on whether or not he supports cash relief. So. I think that in a lot of ways, you won the messaging battle, even if it took this horrible tragedy um, to to get us there. I I mean, I wish that we weren't in these circumstances uh, that accelerated enthusiasm for universal basic income. Uh, It's interesting hearing your parallel set of experiences with the media, um, where it, it, it blew my mind many, many times. Brie, because like I'd be there, like you, I'd have a conversation with the journalist, and then you'd be like, "Oh, that was nice," and then, um, you know, and then it'd be like you do something, and it's like it didn't happen. <laughs> and in my case too, I'll share this: that when I did get press coverage, it was for things that had nothing to do with um, what I was campaigning on. Most of the time, it was for something very personality driven, uh, like like when I danced a Cupid Shuffle, like, uh, <laughs> and then I showed up on the Sunday news programs that weekend it was like me doing the cupid shuffle as like uh you know andrew yag like having a good time on the trail sort of thing and i'm like huh yeah yeah it's hard it, it it reminds me of this conversation that's going on right now right about whether or not the squad should use the fact that there is a really narrow margin for democrats in the house to hold up nancy pelosi's floor vote right if a very small number of progressives could say yes, we're not force going the to vote make, let's talk about force the <laughs> vote <laughs> force the vote um so they could make make it so that nancy pelosi can't be speaker of the house unless she concedes to certain demands and what the main demand that's being pushed right now is that she have a floor vote on medicare for all and the idea being not because there's a high likelihood that they that we would win 
um, that, that the House would pass Medicare for all. Um, there are only 118 co-sponsors in the House. Now, Democrats have a majority, and they, if, if a very Democrat in the House voted for Medicare for all, we could pass Medicare for all. And I think we should reflect on what it means that all the House Democrats wouldn't pass Medicare for all in the middle of a global pandemic. That's a real, I think, indictment of our politics right now. But, you know, there's this, a lot of people are pushing back against the idea saying, well, you're not going to win anyway, so what's the point? And it's all performative. Well, for a lot of us, especially on the left, if you don't do something that can grab attention, if you don't do something performative, if you don't do the keep it shuffle, if you don't figure out a way to marry the performative and the substantive, to say force the vote and let's hold hold up Nancy Pelosi's sp- speakership, let's let's threaten Nancy Pelosi, who, uh, you know, obviously politically, um, because she is one of the least liked, I mean, her favorabilities are worse than Trump. Three quarters of Americans think she should set, should set down. Let's make step down. Let's make her the center of the story and also wet it with some substantive policy goals. Let's get Richard Neal out of the Ways and Means Committee because he's going to block Medicare for all. Um, let's get rid of PAYGO because that stands in the way of us um, being able to get all kinds of big ticket items that PAYGO requires you to fund them as you go along and it makes it very difficult. Um, we kind of put those things together because the average American doesn't want to hear a bunch of wonkery about Pago, but they might be interested in Nancy Pelosi, right? And, and vice versa. And you got to learn how to do a stunt, how to figure out how to exploit the system, which is, yes, very biased against the interest of the left, biased against the interest of, of working people. I like the idea of forcing the vote. I mean, you know, like you should be able to vote on a policy that a lot of people support and just, and if you, if you're not for it, then you don't vote for it. And then we know, or, you know, I mean, you know, it's like, it it shouldn't be that controversial in my mind. Um, Yeah, me either. (laughs) Well, 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 one one thing I want to return to, because it, it speaks to this problem you're describing right now. And I think this is one of the core things. So you said earlier that a bunch of folks trust, uh, liberal media, um, to report things with good intentions, and maybe they make a mistake every once in a while, but there's nothing sinister afoot. Uh, now, the trust in media and the trust in institutions actually um, changes dramatically based upon your political alignment. So society-wide right now, trust in media is approximately 42%. If you say, hey, do you like trust national media to like report the news? It's like 42%. Not great. That's not very good. It's not great. It's it's better Um, than Congress, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Congress is like 15% or something like that. (laughs) Right. So re-election rate of 94%, though. So that's a real problem. Exactly. Exactly. Hashtag first That's something we can get into. (laughs) Right. That's something we can get into, for sure. So... 42% 42% of people trust the media, but it actually varies wildly uh, depending upon your politics. Uh, it turns out Republicans do not trust the media at all, more or less. You look at them, it's down to something like 24%. You look at independents, it's around 42%, whatever the national average is. Then you look at Democrats, it's in the 60s. It's maybe like 62%. So, what, so, so what's happening is you have uh, Democrats who are among the last people to believe that uh, the media is getting it right uh, and that the, the liberal media, or as you'd call it, the corporate news sources are getting it right. And so there's like this conversation that's being had um, that, uh, that folks uh, on really on, on uh, either side are feeling somewhat excluded from. Like in, in your case, the progressives like, hey, is this really what's going on? Like my, my guy just knocked it out of the park, the NAACP, like you might want to report on that. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people like the idea of giving everyone healthcare might want to get behind that and not treat everyone as loony who is for it. Uh, and, and then there are folks on the, the right who have a different perspective. Um, now I'm, you know, obviously more aligned with 
with Democrats. Um, but this institution, non-institution thing is actually, to me, one of the most powerful dynamics. And the media and the folks who trust the media and trust that our institutions are functioning comprise the majority of the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and then there is this subset that I think you are a part of that's starting to question a lot of that. And they're like independent news media sources. There are some independent voices. Um, but it, it's difficult because there are a lot of folks who really do not want to question the institutional powers that be. And to me, the most powerful example of that, which really blew my mind, was before the election when uh, they couldn't come to terms on a relief bill. And uh, Steve Mnuchin, I had like a $1.8 trillion uh, offer that you, you re referenced earlier. And then uh, Nancy did not want that deal for a couple of reasons. And then I was looking around being like, why are people suggesting she should probably take this deal? Like people are hurting. We, we can't wait through the winter. Like, let's just do this thing. Um, and I said that and there were so few people that were on board with my saying that. Yeah, it was like uh, you and Rokana. <laughs> yeah, it was me and Ro. Thank you, Rokana, for not leaving me all alone on this one. Um, but there were so many people that attacked me. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> Welcome and to the club, like, <laughs> Yeah, they attacked me. And I was like, look, I'm like, I, I have my opinion on this negotiating stance. Yeah. Like, I think you should probably jump on this thing. Uh, you know, and, and you can disagree with me. You can say, hey, Andrew, I think you're wrong um, without it being some kind of <laughs> like, you know, like a attack. And, and so there was this thing. There's this thing that happened, at least to me, and I think Bernie for sure. But uh, there was like this institutional resistance to, to someone uh, questioning Nancy Pelosi's uh, process or judgment um, and it shocked me that there weren't more people that were questioning it at, at, at that point. You know, my friend, at, at every stage, this is, this is what we're faced with. Look, I, I, I expect that you probably got some people accusing you of secretly trying to support Trump or why do you hate the Democratic Party so much? You might as well go be a Republican. I mean, that's, that's the kind of response that I get if I say anything mildly critical of a choice made by a Democrat. In in my case, it, I was actually accused of sexism. That that was oh, the, there you go. There, the that's, line of attack. There, there's another one that happens. Look, obviously, sexism is real and uh, true in the world, but it, it can't be. This is again the cynicism around identity politics. Identity matters. People have been marginalized on the basis of their identity, both socially and de jure, like legally. Our government until. 50 years ago was doing this. Identity matters as a political yes. metric. However, identity cannot be cynically used by the party apparatus in order to deflect substantive criticism and the way that's being done repeatedly. And that cynicism around identity is driving people to the right, is driving people into the arms of right wingers that we, in, in, in the, you know, neo-fascist populist up, uprising that created Trump in a way that we don't want to happen. We need to be honest about what's going on and be willing to accept criticism. So, I think that you were right about that. I think that a lot of people now that we see the deal that we got are understanding that a choice was made explicitly because Nancy Pelosi didn't want to give Donald Trump points, any, anything that he could campaign over before the election. Now, that raises a lot of other questions for me. Why was the election so close if Donald Trump was so vile, right? Why was the election so close that the idea of letting him put out a stimulus check with his name on it could have thrown 
maybe, we don't even know that that's true, but maybe could have advantaged him meaningfully in the election. Why wasn't the Democratic Party, long before we got that close to the, to the general election, running explicitly on cash payments to Americans? Why wasn't yes. that arms Fav- race? Favored by 88% of voters. Yep. I don't know what the other 12% are thinking. Uh, 88's pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> yes. By the way, you know what else 88% of voters support? Medicare for all. 88% of voters support, no, sorry, 88% of Democrats support Medicare for all. 72% of voters, according to a Fox News exit poll, a Fox News exit poll showed that 72% of Americans overall support Medicare for all, and about 50% of Republicans do. So why is it that Joe Biden is in, in the context of the general election saying, I would veto Medicare for all even if it passed the House and the Senate? Why is, why aren't we asking the questions about why Democrats are running on these enormously popular beneficial policies that can make the election not so close that we had to deny Americans much needed economic support at a national low point in terms of both the economy and our national health. Now the, the lack of stimulus between April and December was it's unconscionable. Morally- yeah, like morally criminal. Yes. Uh, you know, like, like looking at that objectively, be like, and, and if you withheld for political reasons, um, that's awful. And, you know, you can't, can't know whether that was the motivation, but certainly it felt a whole lot like that. Well, you know, someone, they <laughs> said the at one point, they, they, it was made explicit at one point that, you know, this could, this could help Trump. Like that was an explicit message. I don't remember at this point, don't quote me that that it came out of Pelosi's mouth or somebody else in democratic party leadership, but that wasn't a creation of the media. That wasn't just conjecture that that was the message and Democrats, you know, a lot of Democrats who trust the party bought into that and said, well, yes, the most important thing is defeating Donald Trump. Therefore, even if it hurts millions of Americans, we're going to keep the stimulus in the bag. And, you know, that, that's that's why I'm saying again, like it should never have been that close. Whether or not it helps Donald Trump was only an issue because I believe the the party leadership in in the the chosen candidate didn't do enough to distinguish themselves from Trump and fight affirmatively for what they were going to do for America. Instead, it was a I'm not Trump, let's defeat Trump sort of campaign. And that just doesn't galvanize people the way that cash relief, Medicare for all, canceling student debt, legalizing marijuana, UBI mobilizes people. So Bree, uh, now that, and I, I remember the the spring very well and i know it was deeply painful for everyone on the bernie campaign where it felt like it was this close like right there post nevada and then um jim clyburn endorses joe in south carolina and then the entire tide turns and all the candidates um uh, head a particular direction so it's been seven eight months since then you've now pivoted to become uh an independent voice uh journalist your um producing things that you believe in. What do you see as like the next number of steps uh, for progressives, for trying to make some of these changes happen politically for yourself individually? Uh, You know, I mean, you've had like a fascinating career already and you're still just getting started. Um, But like I I look up and, you know, there are times when I'm very optimistic. Um, there, There are times when I think that the mechanics of our system are just desperately broken uh, and that, uh, and, when you start digging into some of these numbers, like, uh, you know, an 18% approval rating for Congress and a 94% re-election rate, you're like, whoa, like, how does that work? And then you, you, you start 
um, looking at mechanical fixes. Um, one mechanical fix I've been pushing very hard is ranked choice voting uh, in open primaries, which I think would uh, make our politics much more dynamic and responsive and genuine. And yes. then you couldn't you couldn't bully everyone being like, you're going to waste your vote. You're going to like elect the evil or whatever. Yes. It's like, well, if you're ranked choice voting, we don't need to worry about it anymore. So <laughs> let's pursue Absolutely. true democratic reforms. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan, a huge advocate of ranked choice voting. Um, the number one bully pulpit to you, your point that the Democratic Party has is if you don't vote for the lesser of two evils, you're going to make the evil win. And we have been operating on that logic since, you know, realignment and the Democratic Party became what it is today. Um, and the Republican Party became the, you know, Southern strategy party of, 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 of uh, white racism that, you know, it emerged as. And we've been trying to struggle out of that since the 1960s, since the 1950s. And uh, I raised this question, you know, at this point, kind of infamously on our podcast in an episode with Noam Chomsky, where I, I simply asked, look, let's assume that Donald Trump presents a unique evil and we all have to vote him out this time. What do we do between now and 2024 to make sure we're not in this same situation? How do we get out of this lesser of two legalism structure? And if we are willing to pledge our votes to the Democratic Party, no matter what, under any circumstances. I, you know, I thought Michael Bloomberg um, was a closer call in terms of who was worse with respect to Donald Trump because he's a lot more capable and has actually enacted, had actually enacted a much more extreme racial pogrom in New York City than Donald Trump managed, although he certainly tried um, because Michael Bloomberg is an incompetent, unlike Donald Trump. Um, and people were, you know, willing to vote for him, you know, there were Donnie Joyce, people were saying they wouldn't vote for Bernie, but they would vote for, for Bloomberg if he was the eventual nominee. So what authority do we have? What, what line in the sand can we, is there? If, if the Democrat, if Democrats are never willing to say enough is enough, this is not the kind of candidate we want representing us. This is not the kind of party we are. Is there any policy that they won't throw under the bus? Is there any kind of candidate that we won't accept? And if the answer is no, we're go we should expect that the party moves more and more and more to the right over the course of history, the way it, it's been doing. So what's going to stop that movement? I think that ranked choice voting is one of those things. I think greater union participation and figuring out how to organize massive blocks of voters that can meaningfully, incredibly threaten Democrats to say, we are going to withhold our vote. We are not going to mobilize our population unless you adhere to some basic standards, like the fact that 88% of Democrats want Medicare for all, but barely half of the House of Representatives will co-sponsor the bill. What? That like the, the idea, the idea people people are arguing against force the vote who were like, well, it wouldn't pass anyway. That's not an indictment of the idea of force the vote. That's a colossal indictment of elected representatives, democratic representatives in the house. We are in the middle of a global pandemic where 15 million people have just lost their employer-based health care. All of the people who are arguing if you like your health care, you can keep it during the the primary election should be put on the mat by a journalist every single day asking, have you revised your position? Do you want to apologize for misleading the public and spreading right-wing talking points? Because none of that was true. And now you have to answer to 15 million Americans, 15 million who in the middle of a global health crisis have no recourse with respect to paying for their health care. That's unconscionable. And yet we don't have a media apparatus who's willing to do that. And for people like you and those on the left who are willing to stand up and articulate some, you know, break from consensus are ridiculed, 
called traitors to the party, accused of sexism or some other kind of um, identity-based bias. And there's no real reckoning at any point. So I do think that, yes, ranked choice voting needs to be pushed. Democrats will never do it because that's the source, one of the main sources of their power. But we have to agitate for it. Um, we need to start going to town halls. Take a lesson out of the Tea Party's playbook, which is was a lesson out of Saul Alinsky's playbook on the left, and make life uncomfortable for our elected representatives until they start actually representing us. And that goes for some of the people who have been progressive champions as well. It's not about throwing them out or saying they're terrible people or questioning their motives, but it's about understanding that there is a such thing as institutional creep. Um, when you are in office, your motives start to change and you have an incentive in maintaining your status and your position. And you have all of these incentives to raise money and, and give money to the party so that you can get hierarchy and status within your committee positions and all of these kinds of things, which are important, but shouldn't come at the expense of the people that you were elected to represent. We need to give money to independent candidates so that they can rely on the people and be beholden to the people instead of being beholden to corporate interests. We need to push for campaign finance reform so they don't have the option to be dependent on corporate interests. And we all just have to stay a lot more engaged and have confidence, have faith, keep the faith that if we do these things and then we stand together and you recognize that it's not left, right, that it is top down and then the 99% stands together, it is possible for us to have a better world. It is possible. And we should not let pessimism cow us. Oh, you're like the antidote to cynicism. I love it. <laughs> anyone, anyone who needs, needs a reminder of uh, the fact that we can do great things. Uh, Bree's got a podcast every, every week with... <laughs> Virgil, who's more of a Virgil's more of a downer than Bree. So you yes, we, know. we play very, a little bit of a, a yin yang, we're, good cop, bad cop situation. <laughs> oh, there, you know, you're a very good team. Uh, so for you personally, um, I'm sure there was like a sense of depletion uh, after the campaign, and then you've just gotten kind of your legs underneath you in terms of um, this new podcast and your your new uh, independent media project. Would the plan be to just keep on? Uh, building your um, voice and work until like the, the next candidate catches fire and manages to get your attention? Yeah, I mean, certainly I'm interested to see what happens electorally, but I'm also really interested to start to explore non-electoral activism. You know, there's been a little bit of a circular firing squad on the left this past week or two about force the vote. And to try to break out of that, I'm reaching out to union leaders and organizers to try to come on and give us a more... Um, concrete sense of how change happens. You know, a lot of left pundits like to say, well, your idea doesn't work because it really requires organizing and it requires grassroots support. I mean, like, that's great. But don't we play a role in helping to germinate that? Can't we do that? Why not? Right. Like, I'm, I'm not doing anything else. I'm just a podcaster. Let me let me call up the head of my local DSA. Let me write to my representative and see if she can, she can get on the record on Force the Vote. You know, let, let me reach out to the Medicare for All advocates. Let me reach out to Black Lives Matter advocates. Let's see, what does it actually take to get 3,000 people standing in front of the Capitol? What does it take to organize a million person march or the women's march. Let me let me ask um you know some of the people in the not campaign do anything. Did that. This woman <laughs> can do anything she does David. It's beautiful. Well I haven't done um, it yet. One th but I one think thing we I, I want to Oh yo you 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 will do. Um, <laughs> all of those things are very doable. One thing I want to just insert into this force the vote conversation and this is something that a member of Congress informed me of that I was like wow that's freaking terrible. Um, is it's very hard to get any vote going on the floor because of something called the Denny Hastert rule, 
where you need the majority of the majority party to be on board um, yes. to even introduce anything. Yes. So I want you all to um, imagine being first, let's say, a minority legislator. So let's say you're a Democrat in the Senate or, or Republican in the House. You're like, well, I can't force a vote on a single thing <laughs> because we're, yes. we're, not a, we're not a majority of the majority. And then I want you to imagine being a minority of the majority party where you also can't get a vote on anything uh, because, you know, like you, you don't have, uh, I suppose it would be, um, you know, like a hundred and... Uh, 30 or 140 colleagues on board or whatever the number is. Um, so that rule just strikes me as so terrible. Like it, it just seems like such a dysfunctional body where it's literally like if you have the majority of the majority, then you can actually advance things. And if you don't, you can't. And then you can just chill out. <laughs> like, yep. like, yeah. So it, it incentivizes um, an action, which is why this opportunity, right? Because the speaker can bring a floor vote. The speaker, regardless of the numbers you've got can bring us floor vote. Well, and the speaker is the one that enacted this rule. That's not even a rule. It's like uh, you know, it's like the speaker saying, "Well, I'm not going to do it unless the majority majority." So they clearly can do what they want. Yeah, Go and, ahead, and it's aggregating party for herself, a uh, power rather for herself. Uh, all of it. So much of what we see in politics is that people get a little bit of power, and they hoard it. You know, even you know, we talked a lot about. George Bush's overreach and expansion of executive power. And then Barack Obama came into office and instead of dismantling it, once you get there, you're like, well, I'm the good guy. So it's good if I have power. So let me keep let me keep what was aggregated for me in the last administration and then get a little bit of more. And so what we get is increasingly individuals who are able to lord their preferences in a very anti-democratic way over the rest of us. Which I'm going to suggest is particularly problematic when you're looking at uh, a legislative body of hundreds of people. <laughs> like, like that, that, that to me is like more yes. problematic even. I mean, the executive abuses have their own, uh, you know, like separate category of problem. Um, but I feel like in a legislative body, like hoarding it at that level just seems particularly um, egregious, at least to me. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're literally, it's, it's especially the House, that kind of, representative body, the most representative body that we have, basically being frozen in an action, you know, in this idea that, you know, to your point about Republicans not being able to bring something to a floor vote too, look what's happening right now. Who Who's fighting for cash relief? It's a, it's a independent and a Republican, <laughs> you know, um, you know, who are, who are leading the charge, Bernie, you know, so it was, it, it was in the Senate, it was Bernie Sanders and Josh Hawley. Exactly. And then there were some folks working it um, behind the scenes, including Cory Booker. Um, and then I know this because I've been actually working this scene for a while. <laughs> like I, I've, I've been having calls and sessions about cash relief. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then in the house, I'm happy to say that dozens of um, members on both sides of the aisle uh, got on board with with cash relief, mm -hmm. uh, and so there was like this four corners negotiation around the stimulus bill. If you remember the bipartisan Senate bill that got proposed in the beginning of December didn't include cash relief, mm. and, and we had like a freak out here. I had a freak out. I was like, how can there not be cash relief in this thing? Um, but we'd been trying to get folks excited about cash as um, part of this bill for weeks, and so I'm just going to call out a few people, some of whom you know and love, um, but. Uh, Lisa Blunt Rochester and David McKinley were the bipartisan sponsors of a cash relief bill in the House. Mm. And then I'm happy to say that like people from all over the political map, from uh, Pramila Jayapal to, uh, to to Tom Reed to others. And one of the rules we had on that bill was that we want a Republican for every Democrat, um, and we mm. got it. Like so, it just like it grew. It was like Noah's Ark. It was wild. <laughs> um, 
but 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 so you should know that that was happening in the house the house i think was more um uh stridently for cash relief in the senate it blew my mind that after bernie and josh hawley came out and were like hey we should really have stimulus which they were totally right um and and i was working like senators being like you want to get in on that because they're right and like you know like everyone agrees with it um and so it, it was odd that we couldn't get more senators on the record um for cash relief uh there were three that yeah. were for it behind the scenes anyway sorry just no, want no, to let I, you know th- about what's no, going on I, that that's time. that's really useful and i think that part of it is that they're they're not as senators aren't as accountable you know they have longer terms um their races tend to be uh more expensive <laughs> you know um and I think they can, in a lot of ways, be less less accountable to their constituents. Plus, to the earlier point about uh, media bias, I don't know if you saw the clip where Bernie Sanders, you know, went on MSNBC to talk about um, cash relief, and he was pressed by, I believe it was Stephanie Rule. She said, "Well, well, I'm looking at a sheet of paper here, Bernie. She had a graphic all ready to go that says you've only passed whatever." a handful of uh, bills in your entire time in Congress, don't you think you should take a different approach? (laughs) So she completely took the conversation off of this relief bill and millions of Americans who desperately need it to try to give some dig about how she doesn't think that Bernie Sanders has done enough while he is in Congress. And like, that's the kind of crap you get. And, And people get away with it. People get away with it. I mean, I certainly have an axe to grind with MSNBC. I don't know. If you, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you were apprised of the entire like. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, saw, over there. I saw it happening. I saw you, you know, you know, all the the little stuff not cutting to you during the debates. You know, like it. It was it was apparent to me. You know, it was apparent to me what was happening to you. What was happening to Marianne Williamson? Um, you know for like a second there like build a block you like I, I had my eyes open um and i don't think it behooves us even if it were to like advantage my candidate i don't think it, it behooves us in the long term for us to um ignore those things because it, it hurt every candidate at a certain point right there was a point at which um uh cory cory booker and julian castro both raised concerns about whether or not joe biden had the stamina to be president and and the spin room, they were kind of immediately shut down. The coverage of Julian Castro asking that question during the debate of like, did you just, you know, forget what you just said, was really pilloried. Even though if you listen back to the tape, he was completely right. You cannot disagree with his tone or something, but he was accurate in his assessment of what had just happened on the stage. And then the the little, the statement, the, the mild you know, Cory, Cory Booker is so polite. He gave a really soft, mild, you know, like, I'm just concerned. Like, it's something that we should consider. You never heard a peep out of them ever again. The, the back, it was it was like a hard shutdown. We're not going to talk about Joe Biden's, um, you know, stamina, anything cognitive. And we're just going to, we're going to push for like this never happened. And then the idea that anyone would question whether Joe Biden's, you know, little peccadillos here and there were a part of, or an indication of something bigger that was going on. It was, it was spun as this is a left wing attack. I'm like, you know, Cory Booker is, is not exactly what I would call left wing. He's, he's like a lovely man, but he's, this is not exactly what I would call a part of the left vanguard, you know? And so this kind of stuff adds up and it doesn't help people not to have conversations that are gonna emerge in the general because Donald Trump isn't playing by those rules vetted in a primary when we can still do something about it. This is something um, that's come out recently about Diane uh, Feinstein. Yes. Feinstein. Yes. Um, no. And, 
Um, the average age of a U.S. senator is 62, and that's average. So, you know, uh, and the, to me, age is just a number, but they're like some folks that like are, are um, feeling their age and others that are, are less so. And so, you know, if there is some kind of way to verify one, I mean, I certainly think Trump's been freaking deteriorating before our eyes for like the, <laughs> the, the last, number, last number of years. Um, so... This to me is actually something that the media um, should be considered like really much more responsible for um, that we are not. Uh, It's like uh, that that, um, we have leaders who um, would not be considered for leadership positions in other industries (laughs) based based upon their their age. And then in the public sector, it's like... uh, taboo subject to raise um, yeah, in not various just, ways. Just age, like you know. Obviously, I supported a very old candidate, you know, and you know, as much as I felt like it was biased and sometimes not constructive, I'm not going to be mad at anyone for having a conversation about you know, does Bernie have the stamina after a heart attack? Like that's a legitimate conversation to have. But the bias, the unwillingness to have that conversation about Joe Biden, you know, the unwillingness to have a conversation, you know, in light of specific instances of him misspeaking or getting facts wrong or having an emotional outburst at a reporter, listen fat, pushing people, you know, like this, this stuff is fair game if it's going to be fair game about other candidates. And the idea that it could be spun into a left wing attack, it's just, it's, it boggles the mind. Yeah, that, that should be, there should just be a standard. Just, just, just <laughs> so, be even Stevens. That's all I ask. Yeah. Um, Wow, this is so much fun. I can't believe the time has flown by. We should do this every week, Bree. I'm going to urge you to replace Virgil with me. <laughs> let's, let's start a podcast. LOL. <laughs> At that point, I would, I would have to like answer for why I only do podcasts with Asian American men. <laughs> I At that even point, it would, that. it would be three for three for me. <laughs> and I'd have to oh, go wait, see my so, shrink or something about it. I didn't know pre-Virgil. There was another. No, no my, my first. <laughs> oh wait, you're first... so you told me. Yeah, he someone's wrong on the internet. Yes. That's right. <laughs> oh, wow. No wonder. Uh, you know, I, I, this feels so familiar. Um, but it, incredibly grateful to you. Um, really, and learned a lot. Um, you are such a positive voice of both reason and progress. I appreciate the heck out of you. If there's anything I can do to help, let me know. Um, and certainly let Virgil know that if he needs me to pinch hit for him anytime, like, <laughs> I can just sort of show up unannounced. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you too so much, Andrew. You're a clarion voice and I appreciate your willingness to kind of go against the grain. And I really look forward to whatever is up your sleeve next as well. Thank you, Bree. It's so much fun. Have a great holiday season. You too. Stay safe. <laughs>